Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. As of today, school is out for the summer for my kids and all of the other kids in the Oakland public school system. I have to say, it feels pretty anticlimactic. Because for our family and for so many people we know, this landmark means little. Compared to the shock to our family system 10 weeks ago, when we became homeschoolers overnight with no training, preparation, or, I'll admit it, desire, this last day of school hardly registers. And since one of our kids has been struggling with school since kindergarten, we've been talking about continuing some shape or form throughout the summer. But before we plow into this pandemic summer, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to reflect on what we just went through. We just got through what for many of us felt like the longest 10 weeks of our lives. Let's raise a glass to our teachers who had to develop technology skills they never could have dreamed of to teach to a screen instead of to a room full of kids. Let's celebrate all the parents who taught their kids to crack an egg or clean the toilet or even just wash their hands properly. Let's give three cheers for the time when your kids were playing so nicely in the next room that you let them skip all schoolwork for the day because you didn't want to interrupt that rare magic. And tonight... Let's do something fun, a family movie night, a quiet walk down your street, maybe even the happy pop of an open bottle of champagne. And then let's go to bed early because this has been exhausting and it's not over yet. That first weekend when the Oakland Public School System announced that schools will be closed for the next few weeks, I spent the better part of the weekend researching. Like many of you, I stumbled upon that colorful COVID-19 schedule that went viral. It was inspiring at the time. Since then, at least for me, that schedule has provoked much resentment and shame. I even took it one step further and created my own schedule, which was even more complicated and unrealistic. I wasn't excited about homeschooling, but I was going to do it. My kids were not only going to become whizzes at reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they were going to be cooking all of our meals, cleaning the house, gardening, playing piano, and all of the things that we'd always wanted to teach them but somehow never found the time to do before this pandemic. I don't have to tell you that that plan was one big fail. It only took a few days to realize the disparity between my ambition and reality. It wasn't just that I didn't have the energy or the skills to implement that kind of system. It was that my kids didn't want to do any of it. Schoolwork that should have taken us 15 minutes took all day. Trying to get my kids to sit in one place long enough to solve a math problem was like trying to trap a swarm of mosquitoes in an open jar. Even though we were never a big scream time family before, screens suddenly became the only thing my kids wanted to do. All that energy I'd thought I would funnel toward being a great teacher got quickly tapped with the more basic tasks of teaching obedience and tamping down the whining, pestering, and complaining that had existed before this pandemic but now felt constant. Sometimes I would blow up and give myself a time out. Sometimes I threw up my hands and let them have their way, 
hoping that the Kratt brothers and Mr. Rogers could teach them what I wasn't able to. There's a book that has been sitting on my shelf for about a year that I've avoided during this pandemic living. It's Susan Wise Bauer's Rethinking School. I bought it for myself many months ago when a mom I admired recommended it. Someone bought me a second copy when we were in the thick of my son's school troubles this past year. I've been reading it in fits and starts, enjoying it, but when we started homeschooling our kids 10 weeks ago, I stopped reading. I think I was subconsciously avoiding it because I thought it was going to push me to the realization that I needed to homeschool my kids for good. I was so unhappy in our forced homeschool situation that I couldn't bear to face that thought. I should say that I have no hang-ups about homeschool itself. All the moms I know who do it are heroes. My mother-in-law is one of them, and there's no question in my mind that the education she gave her kids is far superior to the one that I had, even though I went to a great public school. But I have never wanted to homeschool. My husband doesn't want to either. Neither of us likes teaching our kids. We're not particularly good at it, which is to say we are actually quite bad at it. For all its flaws, I believe in public education. But revisiting Susan's book this week, my big fear did not come to pass. It didn't convert me to homeschooling. I just wished I'd picked it up sooner. It probably would have helped me a lot these past 10 weeks. Reading it made me feel something I hadn't felt for a while when it came to school. It made me feel hopeful. Susan begins her book challenging all of our assumptions about education. One by one, she dismantles the myths that most of us accept as truth. There's so much good stuff there that it would take me a long time to recap all of it, and Susan's book is so well-researched and written that I'm going to just heartily recommend that you read it for yourself, even if, like me, you are pretty certain that you will never homeschool, maybe especially if that's where you're coming from. The long and the short of it is this. Education doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, the reason our current K-12 system looks the way that it does has more to do with the military and outsourcing childcare than it does with learning. It's a system that works like a factory designed to spit out 18-year-olds that all pretty much look the same. She writes, Our current model of classroom socialization where students primarily spend their days with others born within a 12-month period does nothing to prepare students for real life. Once out of the classroom, they've got to spend their days dealing with a multi-generational world, not the single-age culture they've been conformed to. What's more, Susan says, most K-12 classrooms tend to cater to one type of learner, prioritize one type of knowledge, and favor one kind of personality. In other words, if your kid is not a linear thinker, a compliant, organized kid who can sit still quietly, school is going to be a challenge. With Susan's permission, I'm going to share some specific passages with you. But my big takeaway from this book is that during this time of pandemic living, when we're questioning so many things about our former way of living, we should be questioning education too. For my family, this is not going to mean opting out of public education. From the very beginning, our reasons for sending our kids to public school have been bigger than books. 
Our public school is a bit unusual in that most of the instruction happens in Spanish, and our school has a large Latino immigrant population. There are a lot of things that we can give our kids at home, but the relationships, language, and history our kids are learning at their school is special. The community we're a part of there is a big reason why Oakland feels like home. This is not to say that our school is perfect. No school is. I'm a part of a text chain with 20 or so other parents, and some days I wake up to 50 new messages that represent a flurry of frustration or longing or commiseration over the ways things are and the way they ought to be. I love this text chain because it reminds me that I'm not alone in my struggles and also that the struggles we face as a school and a community are ones that we'll figure out together. But reading Susan's book this week, I started to think about how our return to school might look different, how our summer between now and then could look. I'm not talking about school reform or even social distancing, although certainly that work is important. I'm talking about the messages I'm giving to my kids right now. Susan writes, Tinkering with the mold itself isn't going to break this factory model. Instead, stop and think about what's coming out the other end. Who do you want your child to become? A caution here. Please don't first ask, what do I want this child to be able to do? It's our natural impulse because we know that launching our kids into adulthood is going to require them to find work and do it well enough to support themselves. But the what will my child do question is a fruitless one, largely because the world keeps changing. She says, instead of asking what kind of student we want our child to be, we need to think about our hopes for the kind of person they will become, and then help them figure out who they want to be. She suggests three challenges to help our kids figure out who they are and who they want to be. The first is to pay attention to emotions and feelings. She says for younger kids, pick just two emotions to focus on one positive, one negative. Have them pay attention to simply feel those emotions and note when they happen. She writes, students who struggle are often given the impression that feeling frustrated or confused or bored is a bad thing, a symptom of their inadequacy. Children learn to be ashamed of those feelings and push them down. This doesn't improve learning. It just confuses the mental landscape. It also means that the negative emotions may be manifesting themselves as physical sensations. Stomach aches are the most common, so you might want to include aches and pains as something to be aware of. At the end of the day, she says to ask our kids about when they felt those emotions, to try to figure out if the negative emotions are attached to certain subjects, particular teachers, times of day, or environments. Once we see those patterns, we have some tools to work with the beginnings of a plan that will adjust our child's learning so that we can help them figure out how to listen to those emotions and let them inform the way they learn. The second challenge is to become aware of the things our kids love. She writes, The best learning happens when students are working with, not against, their natural wiring. But education too often becomes a long struggle against those inborn inclinations. She says that paying attention to what our kids love will help us understand how they learn best and whether they have a natural bent 
towards propositional knowledge or procedural knowledge. Propositional knowledge is what we're used to seeing in our classrooms. Knowledge that can be recited, facts that can be remembered and expressed, the kind of knowledge that comes naturally to kids who read and memorize things early and easily, and who process information verbally. Procedural knowledge, on the other hand, is information put to use. Painting, dancing, cooking, sewing, making, doing. Susan writes, Yes, all students need to be comfortable with reading and writing. All students need practice and verbal expression. But the child whose I love list is filled with acting, showing, moving, doing, probably has major strengths in procedural knowledge and won't be served well by teaching that relies almost exclusively on reading and writing, memorizing and testing. She says most of us are a combination of procedural and propositional learners. But understanding where we lean can help us know how to accept ourselves and understand how we work best. She goes on to say of that list of things your child loves, there is much more you can begin to glean from the list. Does the child like to be alone or in a crowd? Quiet or noisy? Surrounded by activity and color or in a clean and sparse environment? Does he prefer to create or absorb? Invent or analyze? argue, or contemplate. Her third challenge is to take self-knowledge tests, not IQ tests, which she has a lot to say about and does not think are helpful, but tests like Myers-Briggs, the Ready Test, and others that she has listed on her website, welltrainedmind.com. Susan says that it's not the test itself that matters, but the conversations and way of thinking that comes from doing them. She did a lot of them with her kids when they were growing up. She writes, We took every self-knowledge questionnaire that came across our paths. A lot of those tests were silly or badly designed or just puzzling. But the simple act of taking them put us into an objective, self-evaluative mode that isn't necessarily natural. And if you do enough of those tests, you start to see patterns. She says that those patterns can be powerful in helping us shape our world. They help our kids to understand that we're all wired differently, and that's not a bad thing. As I'm thinking about our future with our kids coming out of this time, I'm realizing the ways that my kids, and my son in particular, don't fit the system. He's the loudest and most vocal person in our house, but in big groups, he gets shy and his voice drops to a whisper. He doesn't care for writing or solving math problems, but he loves putting on shows, not so much acting in them, but directing them, being the guy who does the lights and the sound. It's almost impossible for him to sit still, unless he's doing something he wants to do, in which case he can be still and focused for hours. He's small for his age and always has been, something Susan says often correlates with needing more time to reach learning milestones. This is not to say that everything about school has been bad for him. His ability to speak Spanish better than anyone else in our family is perhaps the thing that makes him most proud. He comes alive when he speaks it. It's like a big, bright room inside him being opened up. But I doubt he'll ever feel at home in a traditional K-12 model. There are so many things about a typical classroom that play to his struggles instead of his strengths. I don't think that means we have to opt out, and I don't want to. 
But I do think we need to figure out a way to do things differently, at least for our family. Susan says, what we all want as parents is to find the educational situation that matches our child's particular blend of passions, abilities, and talents, meshes with our vision for our kids, and teaches to our child's strengths while generally improving on weaknesses. That is X, the place where the best possible learning happens. X is unobtainable, of course. You'll never find it any more than you'll find the perfect job, the perfect house, or the perfect spouse, or the perfect children come to that. X is ideal, so it always eludes our clutches. But you can imagine X. By imagining it, she says, you can solve for it. Susan writes, X has to equip your child to read, understand basic maths, and express herself, whether in writing or speech, I'll leave that up to you. But she says that in this thought experiment, everything else is up for grabs. She writes, X doesn't have to occupy 12 years. It doesn't have to use textbooks and teachers. It doesn't have to happen during a particular part of the day or year. Forget about truancy laws and your work schedule. Forget about grades and college applications. You're not worrying about those things right now. Every time you think, well, that's impossible, Stop yourself and consciously dismiss the objection. If you could educate your child in exactly the way that would best suit both of you, free of all restrictions and fears, what would that look like? Of everything Susan talks about in her book, this is the part that feels the most hopeful and exciting to me. Not because I have any idea yet on how to solve for X. It's going to take some time to figure that out. Maybe the whole summer, maybe the next year, maybe the next decade. But freeing myself from all of the assumptions about what school has to be gives me the ability to look at the big picture. Our family has been solving for X in life for a while now. I talked a lot about that during my Gratitude and Dreaming Challenge, which you can find in episodes 35 to 40. Solving for X in school has become a part of that. As challenging as life is right now, it's one of the gifts that this time has given us. The permission to put aside our former assumptions about what life had to be, and instead imagine a better one. Personally, I need to figure out how to solve for X without just reverting to my unrealistic COVID-19 schedule. As much as I would like my kids to excel in school on top of being active and musical and learning to cook and garden and be self-directed and also have lots of unstructured time, it's not possible to do all of those things. It helps to think not about what I want them to do, but who I want them to be, who they want to be. Maybe that means we figure out some different ways to learn. Maybe it means taking a gap year at some point, a practice Susan has some great things to say about, and not just after high school. In her chapter, Guiding Parents Who Do Decide to Homeschool Their Children, she says to practice saying, we're doing great, to stop feeling like you have to justify your decision to everyone. It got me thinking about this time we're living in, where we're all homeschooling. Maybe what we need most right now is to say that to each other to remind each other that we're not stuck no matter how bad this time feels. To say to each other, you're doing great. And also, let's solve for X 
one day at a time. Before I close today, I want to thank Patty Wessner, who reached out this past week to make a donation to Shelter in Place. If you've been listening, then you know that this podcast that began as a creative endeavor to mark this time in history has become the way that I'm supporting my family. Little by little, we're making our way forward, and the support of listeners is a huge part of that. Thank you to each of you who have supported this podcast through donations, by subscribing, by using the code SHELTER when you buy wine from my sponsor at brickandmortarwines.com and winesforchange.com. We're solving for X, and you are a huge part of that. Finally, the interview that I did in episode 29 with entrepreneur and business coach Laura Park Figueroa is airing today on Laura's podcast, Mind Your OT Business. If you missed it, this is a great chance to check out her show, which is wonderful and helpful during these times, even if you're not an OT or a business owner. You can find Mind Your OT Business on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, the best way you can support it is to subscribe rate and review it on iTunes so others can find it too. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter in Place music is composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.